Hi, I'm Sasha. And I'm Ezra. And welcome to another episode of our podcast. Concerning climate. Today we have Dr. Jordan Fishbach. He is a senior policy researcher at the Rand Climate Resilience Center. So, without further ado, let's get on to the episode. What is your work and why is it important? All right, well, good morning, guys. Uh, I'm Jordan Fishbach. Um, I'm a senior policy researcher um, at the RAND Corporation, and I currently co-direct um, RAND's Climate Resilience Center. Um, so what does that mean? Um, so my, my background, I work on policy analysis, um, and um, that is something um, that kind of falls in the middle of several different uh, disciplines. So uh, my training is in things like statistics, a bit of economics, um, some operations research and computer science. So it's kind of like um, different things together. Um, and I do a lot of work um, with um, essentially like math and quantitative models um, to look at policy problems and try to answer questions. Um, and um, being a, a researcher at RAND means um, we have a mission um, to try to um, help decision makers make better decisions, full stop, um, using research and science. Um, so that's kind of big picture what I do is as I try to connect the scientific world um, with the public policy world um, and use what we can learn from science to help make better decisions. Um, now, in this particular case, um, I do a lot of work focused on um, climate adaptation um, or climate resilience. Um, and that is essentially, you know, there's different parts of the world dealing with um, the implications of climate change. Um, but where my particular focus on is, is on is um, the climate impacts that we've already experienced uh, over the last uh, century and particularly the last few decades and looking out into the future, the climate impacts that we're going to experience that no matter what we do in terms of reducing emissions, we're going to see more um, impacts from climate change. Um, and it's my job um, to help decision makers figure out, well, what do we do about that? How do we think differently? How do we build differently? And how do we design differently? Um, so that um, our all of our systems, um, you know, the in infrastructure that we have, the roads that we build, um, the mass transit that we have, uh, the water systems that we rely on, um, all of those systems, as well as 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 people systems, right? How do communities respond um, when we're dealing with um, something that has been stable for basically all of human history or, or all of civilization that is now a moving target? Um, and how do we how do we think about that? We don't know exactly know what it's gonna what it's gonna look like or when that's gonna happen. And so it's it's my job um, to help um, answer questions um, in that world and help uh, decision makers at all levels, from the from the U.S. government um, all the way down to to local decision makers as they deal with those challenges. Cool. So um, next question is. Uh, what, what is your definition of climate change and how does it relate to your work? Okay, um, so definition of climate change. Um, I, uh, and again, um, I, will, I will note that my background, I have a PhD in policy analysis and I, I work in the, in the climate sphere, but I am not a climate scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, and I'll just preface this, you know, one of the interesting things about climate is that to really tackle this as a policy problem, you need people with backgrounds all over the place, right? So not all of us are climate scientists. In fact, you've got folks like me who do, who do public policy work. You have folks that um, work really on social science and think about the impacts on people and communities. Um, and then you do have the hard science folks and engineers who have to deal with this just as much as well. So I'm gonna tell you my perspective on climate change as a non-climate scientist, but I do work with this stuff a, a fair bit. Um, 
So the, the simple definition is that there's a greenhouse effect, right? It's why uh, it's one of the reasons why life exists on Earth is that we have an atmosphere that is able to um, trap some of the energy from the sun. Um, and um, that keeps the Earth at a relatively warm and stable temperature. And that has allowed life to thrive on Earth um, over you know, millennia, over, over many millions and, and billions of years. Um, so that basic fact that there's this greenhouse effect and it, it holds energy in um, has been true and is, is formative for, for us. And the greenhouse effect is caused by um, gases in our atmosphere um, that are able to trap some of the sun's energy um, and hold it so that it, it comes into the atmosphere, but not all of it can radiate back out um, like on some other planets that don't have that kind of atmosphere. And uh, climate change basically is, is being caused because we are emitting greenhouse gases. We are putting out um, uh, through a variety of, of, of different uh, changes that we're, we're doing, both uh, industry, changes to land use, and, and um, in other areas of, of the globe. Um, we are putting out greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide and methane. Um, and those gases um, add to the, the, the total, so to speak, of gases that can hold in um, this, this radiation from the sun. And that means over time, and as, we, as, we've, uh, as we've continued to make more of a human impact on the Earth's surface and, and continue to build out industry and, and burn fossil fuels, for example, um, we've changed that balance enough that we're trapping a little bit more energy and a little bit more energy all the time, and that is causing the atmosphere to warm. Um, so we used to have a, a pretty, you know, a stable baseline, at least for, for tens of thousands of years, um, relatively minor changes um, up or down based on more natural processes. Um, and now we're seeing um, warming that extends well beyond uh, what we've seen, for example, through all of human civilization and actually even well beyond that. Um, so uh, it, essentially this basic effect, which was first described, you know, over, over a century ago and is, is well understood, um, is and is the basic physics of it has has contributed enough, um, and we've burned enough greenhouse gases now. To be honest, um, that we're really seeing the impacts of climate change. Um, so over basically over the last century, we've had a little over about one degree Celsius or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit of warming um, across the globe. Um, that's an average, um, and that's been caused by this change in balance um, in the atmosphere, particularly over the last century and especially over the last few decades. So how did you get interested in your work? Hmm. Really good question. Um, so I, um, um, when, I was, uh, I, when I was in college, I actually studied history. Um, and I was an American history major. And it's interesting to go from there to, to where I am now. Um, and and you know, there, there were a few key steps in the process. One was um, what I learned about history is that history is an ever-changing um, field because the questions that we ask about the past are almost always related um, to what we're experiencing in the present. So history is always changing because we're like curious about different things, we're discovering new patterns, and it's almost always true um, that you know, what we're, we're learning about the past and the questions that we ask from our history are related to what we're grappling with, the problems and the challenges that we're dealing with today. And when I graduated from college, I was like, well, what do I, what do, I do with that? Do I wanna study history for the rest of my life? Um, and I ultimately decided, actually, what I want to do is tackle public policy problems. I want to think about um, how, how not, not just what we ask of the past, but then how do we look ahead? And how do we look into the future and say, well, what, what can we predict? Um, what don't we know? And how can we do better um, in, um, in, in trying to solve problems based with that um, uncertainty? 
So I worked actually for a few years after college at, um, at a firm that helped uh, the Environmental Protection Agency implement drinking water regulations. So I worked on drinking water uh, regulations. I learned a little bit about environmental policy um, through that job. Um, and then I learned about RAND um, and about uh, the RAND Corporation when I was thinking about graduate school. And RAND is an, an organization that has a mission devoted to, um, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan um, research organization that is devoted to essentially exactly what I wanted to do. And I learned that there was a graduate school within RAND um, that really trained you know, quantitative analysts to do this, this work um, in, a very, um, in a very rigorous way. Um, so that's, I, so I, I ended up going to RAND um, and I always knew I wanted to work on problems related to the environment, <clears throat> related to water resources in particular. That was a particular focus of mine, you know, um, dating back for a long time. And it just just so happened that in doing that work, um, water is one of the areas where um, climate change impacts are being felt first, right? We're seeing changes in all sorts of systems of water um, across the globe. Um, because of climate change. So for example, in the desert Southwest, um, an area that I've done some work in, um, we're seeing um, more severe and frequent droughts um, and a reduction overall in the amount of snow that, that, um, that actually, uh, the snowpack um, that will fall and stay as snowpack in the Rocky Mountains, for example, um, and um, rising heat, which means um, like not as much of that water sticks around. Some of it evaporates, some of it is taken up by plants um, and um, the, the, the water supply impacts are being felt pretty early on. Um, so pretty quickly, doing water work also meant doing climate change work because it's all interrelated and there's no way to get away from that. And then slowly over time, I realized, oh, okay, I, I, do, I do water policy research, but nearly everything I'm doing, I'm looking ahead, I'm trying to help you know, develop infrastructure plans, and there's no way to do this work well while just relying on old methods. Um, and by old methods, I mean by relying on the past by just looking at, well, how much rain fell over the last 100 years, okay, that's the amount of rain that we should plan for. Instead, it's how much rain could fall um, over the next 50 years, and how do we plan for different scenarios when we're not quite sure where we're gonna end up. Mm. So, um, you already like, touched on this, but um, what are some ways that climate change affects cities? Oh, that's a, a, a yes, a great question. and. It's a good question also because every city is different. Um, and so, um, you know, a, a city like New York City or Miami um, is going to be different than a city like Pittsburgh, is going to be different than a city like Denver. Um, and I actually, I do a lot of work on climate change in cities. And the way it's worked across the globe is that this, the cities, for the most part, that have been really tackling this challenge, um, uh, first and foremost, are really kind of ahead of the curve, have been dealing with problems of sea level rise. So um, one major impact of climate change is that um, it's, it's causing changes in our oceans, pretty significant changes. Um, and one of the most significant that we're expected to feel um, will be sea level rise. So uh, a warming atmosphere um, eventually means that the, um, the ocean itself is taking up a lot of heat. Um, and what happens when the ocean takes up heat? Well, it actually expands. So the water actually like is taking up more space and therefore sea levels go up. Um, in addition, um, a warmer atmosphere means um, melting ice on land in areas like Antarctica and Greenland. And that ice eventually makes its way, um, that melting ice makes its way to the oceans. And slowly over time, um, that is going to cause, that is expected to cause pretty significant increases in sea levels. For, so for cities, again, like New York, um, like Miami, that are right at the water's edge, 
um, those cities um, have to fundamentally change um, how uh, essentially how they do business um, and um, it's and, and really rethink how they um, how they can how they can um, protect people how they can build um, and how folks can stay in place um, when you're faced with rising sea levels um, a really good example of this is I've done a lot of work in the city of New Orleans um, where I actually wrote my dissertation research there and focused on New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina thinking about how do you defend a city like New Orleans with faced with rising sea levels um, over time and um, they already have uh, major you know, flood barriers are surrounding the city of New Orleans, but the net result is those actually might have to get bigger um, in order for folks to be able to stay in New Orleans. And um, the areas around New Orleans um, are, are actually both uh, uh, sinking, um, so the, the land is actually subsiding or sinking and you have sea level rise. So it's also a question of how sustainable can those communities be when we look out 50 or 100 years into the future. All right, so sea level rise in coastal cities. Um, and then I would just briefly say the other two main impact or three main impacts, I should say, are in cities like Pittsburgh, um, we have to deal with heat and we have to deal with rainfall. Um, so um, here, uh, urban heat is something that every city will have to deal with. As it turns out, as you guys know, um, cities have lots of pavement um, and lots of roofs um, and they absorb a lot of heat. Um, so cities typically um, um, are warmer um, and areas that are really developed are warmer because all that asphalt and pavement and roofs are absorbing heat um, in a different way than a, a natural system or, or tree cover might be. Um, so they're typically hotter um, the more developed that they are. And that's, that's called the urban heat island effect. And so even you know, a city like Pittsburgh, as the atmosphere warms, um, we're actually going to see more warming within the city. And then in particular in neighborhoods that don't have enough green space, um, they're going to see especially more warming than that. So there's been a lot of good research done recently just to show, oh man, there's a real big difference between a neighborhood that is covered over with parking lots than there is one that has um, a lot of tree cover or a lot of natural space there. So heat um, and the way that heat can impact people can be pretty significant as we get to, to warmer and warmer heat levels. Um, another main impact in Pittsburgh is um, heavy rainfall. Um, so the, the climate science is, is, is pretty certain about this, but there's a lot um, that we don't know about the timing or how this will be felt. But the expectation is climate change um, by warming the atmosphere is also going to, um, uh, and is, is currently, I should say, <clears throat> causing us to see more severe um, thunderstorms, rainstorms, and, and essentially these and any sort of precipitation events. And the reason is very simple. There's a relationship where essentially the more the atmosphere warms, the more water vapor it can hold. Um, uh, just very simply. And so as you're, um, as you're warming the atmosphere, you're sort of supercharging the, the, the amount of water vapor that's up there. And it means any given storm can drop a whole lot more rain or snow or whatever it is. Um, and that's, that's the, the basic premise. Um, and what we see from that is that a, you know, a storm that might have, uh, a rainstorm that might have occurred like once every 50 years, once every five, 75 years, now it's occurring once every 10 years or once every five years. So, and your, your average storm might actually be, it, it might just be, be, be dropping more rain. And so for Pittsburgh, you know, we already deal with flooding issues. We're dealing with um, uh, water quality issues in our rivers in particular. And we have a very old uh, sewer system that combines um, rainfall and, uh, and, and sewer, like, and, and uh, wastewater basically together in the same pipes. So when it rains more, we have more sewers that overflow into our streams and rivers. So it's, kind of yucky, um, but that's uh, definitely one of the effects that, that we experience here. And actually, I actually do a lot of work um, on, on that particular issue. 
then, in, and I mentioned Denver is one other exam, example, um, a main effect for cities that are uh, water scarce, obviously we have plenty of water in Pittsburgh, um, but are, that are water scarce um, is going to be um, a lack of water supply. So for areas that really depend on uh, snowpack that have, um, that are in, in, in more um, semi-arid or arid areas, um, because of the effects that I described before, um, that water supply might be more inconsistent. There might be years where there's not enough water flowing down from, from the mountains, um, and they have to figure out how do we store enough water, how do we deliver water um, to our residents, um, and how do we make sure that we can continue to operate um, if we're faced with a, with a major drought or a mega drought. So what are some things you do that make more city, that make cities more resilient to climate change? And what are some examples of that? Great question. Um, so I will, uh, I will describe uh, several different um, places that I work just by, by way of example. I mentioned New Orleans and, and Louisiana before. Um, so one way you can do it is essentially the way that New Orleans has done it historically, which is by building hard defenses, you know, in, building big infrastructure to defend a city. So New Orleans, as I mentioned, it has levees and flood walls that surround the city. Um, and the idea is um, to, to use engineering um, to overcome concerns about sea level rise um, and be able to handle both um, you know, uh, sea level rise over time, as well as the effects of hurricanes um, and the, the storm surge that those hurricanes um, will bring to areas like uh, New Orleans. Um, so hard defenses are one way to do it. Um, and uh, in the Netherlands, they're kind of the, the foremost, uh, they're the, the leaders in many ways um, in this because they, they developed a massive engineered system to protect and actually um, and, and, and protect a, a good swath of, of their country um, about a half century ago. And many people have patterned their storm defenses off of what's been built in the Netherlands. Another example of this would be an area like Venice where Venice um, is also dealing with a lot of issues related to the city itself sinking and sea, and sea level rise will be a challenge there. And they've essentially built, they've tried to close off their entire uh, lagoon and be able to directly control the amount of water there so that they're not essentially, I mean, so that they can, they, so that they can essentially close off and manage that system and keep the water out. So one way to do it is to keep the water out. Um, another way to do it in, uh, that I actually do a, where I do a lot of work in Louisiana um, is, is to manage more with nature um, or a combination of both. Um, so managing with nature means recognizing that um, wetlands, that um, uh, coastal forests, that other types of natural systems um, um, that are already present um, actually do a lot to buffer um, communities on the coast from the impacts of um, the, uh, the oceans and the impacts of coastal storms. And um, so we see that a lot. And, and one of the challenges with human development um, is that we've been cutting those things down, right? We've been developing over or, um, you know, building houses on um, or, you know, cutting canals through a lot of these natural defenses. And so another way that has been, um, is, is been implemented in a number of different areas, and that's a lot of active work right now, is to build with nature um, and to use natural defenses um, to help protect um, those, those, those areas and provide a buffer um, against uh, coastal storms and against things like sea level rise. Um, so kind of the, the nature-based approach is another main way to do it. I, I described coastal. And that's also true here in Pittsburgh. Um, so when we're dealing with excess rainfall, for example, um, proposals that are currently on the table or, or in progress to deal with our, our sewer overflow issue that I mentioned earlier, well, there's also kind of 
gray or hard infrastructure proposals, which are, you know, build additional water treatment plant or build a bigger water treatment plant, I should say, build very deep tunnels below, you know, um, next to the rivers to capture and hold all of that combined sewer overflow. And that's essentially the, the sort of the traditional approach to these kinds of things. Um, but there are others who advocate for um, essentially doing it with nature or trying to do it with a combination of both and use green infrastructure um, to try to manage uh, to try to manage that excess rainfall. So that that would be, you know, wetlands, ponds, putting new streams in um, and trying to um, use natural systems as much as possible to hold water on the surface, um, to kind of capture that rainfall, to redirect it and not ever let it become sewer overflow in the first place. And recognizing that those kinds of interventions might also help to deal with the urban heat issue, might also help to provide other benefits to communities. So kind of some of the more um, the, the more innovative work that's happening now is thinking about how to engineer with those green systems or combine both green systems and, and gray systems or hard, or hard infrastructure both um, to create a level of protection that, that we currently don't have. So so what are so how can um like people who aren't like specifically in like the field uh help cities recover from uh natural disasters caused by climate change um so that's uh that's an, an important topic um because in some ways we all have a responsibility to do that and you know the people that work in the disaster uh field um, often say that there are no natural disasters, right? There are weather events or there are things that happen, but what makes it a disaster is how um, our systems do or don't respond to those things. And so in that sense, we all have a responsibility. So as, a, as an individual citizen, you can be prepared, right? You can know what kind of risks do we face? What kind of preparation should I take for myself or for my family? And like even more importantly, oh, I'm okay. Like I've kind of taken care of myself. Um, who else do I need to worry about in my on my block in my neighborhood if there is a problem? And so one way that really we found and the, the research supports this that cities can recover faster and and do a better job is through community resilience. And that's often neighbors knocking on doors and saying, "Are you okay? Do you need help?" Um, recognizing, okay, we have an elderly you know couple that lives five doors down, and I'm not sure um, how they're doing after the power got knocked out. We're going to go check on them, right, or make sure that they're okay. And as it turns out, those kinds of, um, of, of actions can be really important and meaningful um, and often can help um, a, a community bounce back more quickly um, and, and essentially you know, build in that resilience at the, at the relationship level. Um, so that's kind of you know, like what you can be doing um, really starts there. And we're lucky in Pittsburgh that we don't face the level of weather sort of disaster risk that some other cities might face, that we don't face the kinds of hurricane risk um, that we don't we don't necessarily have the same level of concern, but we still have concerns. We could have a major a major heat wave um, that came through, um, and if we if you have a major heat wave and you lose power, or, or in Pittsburgh, not everybody has air conditioning, right? So if we have a major um, uh, heat event here, um, there could be a lot of folks that don't have air conditioning that need to get to a cooling center, um, or else they might um, really suffer or end up in the hospital. Um, so those kinds of things I think would be important even, even in a place like Pittsburgh and it's something we all need to be thinking about. Um, beyond that, 
um, in sort of when you're thinking about you know what you can do, there's all sorts of ways to volunteer. There's so many organizations that are working on um, this topic, uh, whether it's environmental groups that are trying to advocate for um, you know doing uh, doing more of this you know this nature-based work that I'm describing, um, whether it is um, other community service groups that are trying to build in that community resilience, or groups that are working towards equity and justice, um, which we increasingly recognize are part and parcel um, to the same challenges that I'm describing and the way that the that the physical world interacts with the human world um, is always going to disproportionately affect communities that are already struggling. And so I feel like all of those are actually ways of working on climate um, without even actually, you know, getting to a direct climate, you know, gig or a, a job or something like that. Um, I'll describe a couple other things. So um, as I noted, um, you know, you don't have to be a climate scientist to work on this problem. This is a problem that I think more and more careers will be will be directed here in some way. I am not a climate scientist, and I think um, if you want to be an engineer and think about the ways that you could contribute as an engineer, uh, if you want to be uh, work in public health and think about the way that you can help people through a public health job, but recognize that that increasingly um, in a city could mean working on on climate as well or, or dealing with climate impacts um, on communities. So I, I guess what the, the the long and short is, I would say that. Um, there are so many different paths that you can take um, that would end up focusing or having some aspect that can contribute to this challenge. Um, and of course, the, the, what, one of the most important of those that I, that I didn't mention would be actually going directly into the political realm and trying to actually go be a decision maker and implement the changes needed yourself. So in the US, what do you think is the most vulnerable place to the effects of climate change? Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, um, I work, I, I feel like I do work in some of the areas that are, are most vulnerable. Um, I mentioned coastal Louisiana before, and I think it's, it's pretty well recognized that Louisiana is um, one of the areas already experiencing and, and likely to be most vulnerable to future climate impacts. So um, just for a few stats, coastal Louisiana is actually has one of the largest and most productive coastal ecosystems in the world. Um, and because of essentially all sorts of different decisions that were made over the last century, um, much of that coastal landscape is, is disappearing. Um, so this is not just climate change. This is due to uh, changing the way the Mississippi River flows, um, kind of uh, essentially like the way that we've uh, protected communities from river flooding has, has been a major impact here actually ever since 1927. Um, and so uh, Louisiana has lost, you know, on the order of 2000 square miles of land since 1927, um, just across that landscape. And when we look forward, we're looking at hundreds to thousands of additional square miles of land lost due to a combination of sinking land, of sea level rise, um, and of ongoing, you know, um, um, ongoing development, industrial processes, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so um, Louisiana is very vulnerable and communities there are experiencing the combination of all these past decisions and uh, the changes that are coming down the pike with respect to climate change. Um, so it's one of the reasons that I actually do so much work there is because of its level of vulnerability. Um, I think coastal Texas and Houston is another one. We saw that with Hurricane Harvey, um, where the way that Houston has been built and developed is, is not really resilient at all and, and not, not particularly thoughtfully planned. And so Houston's vulnerability, both to coastal events, as well as to rainfall events and flooding is pretty massive. So I do worry about Houston. 
Um, and then finally, I would say uh, South Florida is the other area that I, I do worry a lot about. Um, and, and Florida in general over the long run. But South Florida has a combination of a whole lot of people live there. Um, it's, it's highly developed. Um, it's it's uh, very you know low lying with very little elevation. Um, and it's exposed to hurricane flood risk, uh, heavy rainfall events, like I mentioned, heat, like I mentioned, and the ongoing effects of climate change. Um, but what's interesting is that in an area like um, Miami, um, you can't necessarily just build a wall. Um, the way that South Florida, um, like actually the, the, the geology of South Florida, if you want to go into to the geology side, um, uh, the, the, um, the, the rock that is underneath Miami, for example, is porous. So if you, you build a wall um, up um, and try to keep coastal water out um, for Miami, it's going to go under the wall and come up anyway. And oh. so, yeah, so a lot of the, so what, one thing they're dealing with now are things like saltwater intrusion, right? They actually get their water from groundwater. And they're worried about um, too much seawater mixing in with that groundwater and making that water not really drinkable. Um, and so that's a that's a major concern. And you can imagine, you build a wall, it doesn't do anything for that. That's still going to happen. Um, and there's a concern that um, any sort of like hard defenses like that um, really wouldn't have an effect because the water can get through anyway. And so the number the the, the, um, the options that you have in an area like uh, South Florida, you know, start to dwindle. And it's and it's just we've put so much uh, expensive stuff there and so many people there, um, and it is highly highly exposed. And and when you look at maps of future sea level rise, Florida is one of the obvious places where the impacts are, are likely to be felt the most. So over the next fifty to hundred years, um, Florida can can look like a very different place. Mm. So, kind of on a different note, uh, what is the most rewarding uh, thing about what you do? Um. Well, I, uh, yeah, so as I mentioned, I get to work at, um, with, you know, folks at the federal government level, I get to work at the state level, I get to work at the local level. Um, and I think, I mean, I've, I've chosen over the last five, six years in particular to um, work closely on climate issues in Pittsburgh. And I think um, what I find very rewarding is when I can actually directly um, connect to um, local decision makers, residents, and community groups that are working on this issue. Um, and so I, I really find it rewarding when I can when I can find the places and the ways that I can make an impact um, that aren't just sort of up here at 30,000 feet or in, in more of an academic mode, but really are, what is the direct problem that you're facing and how can I help to address that or make it better um, using you know the, the research and analysis that we've done and the expertise that I have. Um, so I'll give you one example. Um, so um, locally, um, there's been some great work done by um, partners and colleagues of mine um, to develop um, different task forces for watersheds around the city of Pittsburgh. So trying to bring people together to help plan um, on a basis that is more uh, more thoughtful for how water actually falls. Um, so I've participated in one of those, um, the Negley Run Watershed Task Force. Um, over the last several years um, as a RAND researcher um, and as an active participant. And that includes uh, environmental groups, community groups, neighborhood organizations, um, and then all of the agent, the local agencies um, that are that have some management responsibility in that area. And then folks like me who are more on the tech, technical expert side. And that's essentially bringing everybody around a table saying, what projects are you working on? What challenges are you facing? What, what can we do to make this better? And how can we work together um, to not, not just like change things at the margin, but really change the system as a whole. 
And so some of that that work I think is is really really rewarding, and I find that to be um, kind of where my heart is uh, to um, sort of directly connect into those issues and make sure that we're thinking about changing systems um, rather than just working within our kind of narrow uh, silos or our narrow areas um, and not not getting at those bigger systemic effects that are affecting communities. If you had one piece of info or advice that you could give everyone listening and us, what would it be? Okay, um, so I, uh, this is a, yeah, that's a, one, one piece of advice is always difficult as, as you get older, you know, you're like, you've got so many things running around in your head all the time. <laughs> all right, um, I'll, I'll, I, will, I will crib from some of my colleagues here and say, when it comes to climate change, um, yeah, it's bad. Um, and this is really scary and it's, it's challenging and I think it's going to be the challenge of my lifetime, of your lifetime and of lifetimes beyond. It's bad, but we can fix this. Like we can do this. Um, we have the ingenuity, we have the technology, we have the ability um, to overcome this. And through all of human history, um, the way that humans have gotten ahead, I mean, literally evolutionary, the way that we've gotten ahead is by working together. That is our great advantage is being able to work together to solve problems. That's what makes humans humans and build communities that can collectively work to solve problems. Well, now we have this global problem. And so we have to figure out how do we work together um, both to <clears throat> wean ourselves off of greenhouse gases and stop um, contributing to this problem. And then also changing how we live, how we build and, and in some cases where we live um, so that we can live sustainably um, within the world that, that we've created. And it is a massive, massive undertaking, um, but it is fixable. And so I think that the advice I would give is, is don't give up hope um, and don't see, you know, there's often, there's timelines people say, if we don't do this before over the next 10 years or by 2030, um, then um, there's, there's, no, there's no end of this timeline. There's just the work that we need to do to solve the problem as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take dedicated progress every single day. And that means remaining hopeful, um, remaining like, like committed to the cause um, and finding ways um, to work uh, with others towards solving the problem rather than kind of giving into, oh, well, well, I can't do this or, you know, I, I'm just going to live my life as best I can and, and we'll I'll, I'll ignore that problem. Um, I think it's accepting the scale of what we have to do and then finding the ways that you can work yourself and work with others to fix it. So thank you so much, Dr. Fishbach, for doing this. Thank you Absolutely. so much for your time. Yeah, thank this you. This has been great. Yeah. We've learned a lot of things. Yeah, thank Good. you so much. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I want to give another big thank you to Dr. Jordan Fishbach. It really means so much to us that you agreed to be a part of our episode. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. And remember to do good things for the environment. You also can follow us on our Instagram at Concerning Climate Podcast. See you later. Bye. Bye.